Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Kevin Davis. Kevin is the uh, Beller Family Professor of Business Law at NYU School of Law. Uh, he's previously served as NYU Law's Vice Dean for Global Affairs. He is expert on many things, including, as most relevant here, transnational corruption. And he has a new book out, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, called Between Impunity and Imperialism, The Regulation of Transnational Bribery. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe before we uh, get into the book, which I know I, I very much want to uh, discuss with you, maybe you can tell both me and our audience a little bit more about your own background in the field, how you became interested in transnational bribery and international corruption more generally as a topic, and how you've pursued that topic in your academic work. Right. Well, my interest in the field actually dates back quite some time now, at least over 20 years since I began my career as a legal academic, basically. And it comes from two directions. So first of all, I have a general interest in commercial law, and for me that includes white-collar crime, so the extent to which commercial activity becomes criminal. But then probably more importantly, most of my work is motivated by an interest in the relationship between law on the one hand and economic development on the other hand. And quite early on, it became clear that corruption was a significant influence, which can have a significant influence on development, and so it seemed logical to be, begin thinking about the relationship between anti-corruption law and countries' development prospects. And so that's what got me interested. And, and then, since I was based in North America, focusing on sort of transnational law uh, and its potential impact on development was a logical next step. I see. So was there a particular area of the world, a particular region that you were especially interested in that prompted your interest both in uh, law and economic development and in anti-corruption, or have your interests tip generally been uh, transnational and focused on the impact of U.S. law and legal rules on the issue worldwide? I think in a biographical sense, my interest was sparked by the fact that I spent my childhood in Jamaica. So growing up in a developing country and then moving to a richer country, let's say, or a more developed country, makes you automatically start to think about, well, what explains these differences in outcomes? And once I became a, a legal academic, it was natural to start thinking about, well, is anything I'm doing here going to help me understand what I saw and continue to see in places like Jamaica? But I never actually wrote anything specifically about Jamaica or the Caribbean, and my initial work was much more general and actually basically theoretical. Um, it was about the transnational regime and how it affected the world generally. 
Great. So so let let's now turn to the book. So my my understanding is that this book between impunity and imperialism is in some sense the culmination of a body of research that you've been working on for for some time now. Can you tell me and our listening audience a bit more about that line of research and the and the book itself? The title Between Impunity and Imperialism is a very p- provocative and arresting title. So maybe you can say a little bit about what you're trying to convey uh, with that as the title. So the title is intended to capture my ambivalence about this regime, basically. Because on the one hand, the problem of impunity for corruption strikes me as a serious problem. The fact that both multinational enterprises on the one hand and public officials on the other hand can get away with paying and receiving bribes in all sorts of scenarios and with really terrible implications for a lot of countries, that's something that has to be addressed, right? So that's the concern about impunity. At the same time, the response that seems to be most celebrated in the current literature, the sort of what I call the sort of OECD paradigm and the the thinking that underlies it, seems to involve countries in basically the developed world and basically the OECD countries taking responsibility for regulating transnational bribery, and using what I think of as a fairly dogmatic approach, sort of saying, well, it's this is the way to do it, and it's pretty much the only way to do it. And that's uh, an approach that I think you can fairly call or characterize as a form of legal imperialism. And so the title is really about to, to suggest that there's a tension between those two attitudes towards the regime, and the book is about trying to figure out whether there are ways to navigate the tension. So great. I'd love to hear more about navigating that tension as you put it. Let me pick up on what you just said and the the use of the term legal imperialism, which is certainly provocative and I I suspect deliberately provocative. Can you unpack a little bit more the nature of the criticism or set of concerns that motivates the use of that terminology. I could imagine that many of our listeners who feel passionately about the need to fight corruption maybe feel especially passionately that the called the wealthy countries, the developed countries, uh, should take more responsibility for constraining the activity of their own citizens or corporations or nationals when they go into the developing world or the global south or whatever you want to call it. And for, for people who have that attitude, it might seem initially jarring to describe those efforts under what you you call the OECD paradigm to, let's say, criminalize the payment of bribery in in foreign countries as a kind of legal imperialism. So what would you say to defend the use of that terminology to folks who have that view? Isn't isn't this the, the wealthy Western countries actually, in a limited and imperfect way, trying to take some responsibility uh, for the harm that their nationals are doing in the developing world? Why would you call it imperialistic? Right. And so it is intentionally provocative. And I think I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying, I'm, to the extent I call it imperialism, I'm focusing on the legal imperialism. The book I have to constantly explain to people is not about what's sometimes called moral imperialism. I'm, I'm definitely not taking the, the position that, it's, um, that this regime imposes moral standards that have been developed in the North on the countries in the global south that would disagree with them. So there's a line of argument in the literature sometimes that that suggests that, well, it's all relative. We might disapprove of bribery, but in a lot of these countries, it's just the way things are done, and it's actually accepted. And so it's inappropriate to impose our standards on these countries. And that's not what the book is about. It starts from the premise that the impunity is a problem, that there's a 
almost a moral consensus about the harms associated with bribery, and it's really about the design of the legal institutions that are going to respond to the problem. So just to, to be very clear, it's about the specific legal imperialism. But to, your, to the challenge that, well, this is just about taking responsibility for the conduct of the nationals of OECD countries. Well, that's a valid defense of what's going on. But the regime does more than that. It affects more than just, say, Americans or English people uh, or Germans who pay bribes in foreign jurisdictions. It's also affecting all of the stakeholders in those companies, right, who may not be nationals of the, the enforcing countries. And more importantly, it's affecting nationals in the countries where those firms are doing business. And so the regulation is having effects beyond the borders of these countries, and that's the sense in which you can say it's imperialistic. That's one factor. And then the other sense is that traditionally there has been a paradigm. There's been a sense that there's one right approach, right? There's relatively little input on the part of, let's say, people in the global south into the design of the regime. And so it's in those two senses. It's regulation that affects people beyond borders, in fairly significant ways, as I, I, at least I argue in the book, and without the input of the, all the people who are being affected. Great. So that's very helpful. Let me uh, try to get a little bit more specific on two, two aspects of this, maybe two sides of the same question. So you referred at, at several points in the comments you just made to the regime or the system, um, and I think it might be helpful both for me and for our listeners, to get a clearer sense of what the most central or essential elements of that existing system or paradigm or regime are, so that when you or others suggest that there's a form of imperialistic imposition of that regime, we know what the content is. And then that's what I'm going to ask you first, but then after this, I want to ask you to elaborate on alternatives. If not this regime, what could the regime look like? But let me start with that first question. So the existing, I don't want you want to call it regime or system or paradigm, what you refer to uh, in the book and, and referred to a moment ago as the OECD, OECD system. What would you say are the essential elements of that system? What are its key characteristics? So we know that's the thing we're talking about. So the book is only about bribery. I know that this podcast is broader in scope than bribery, but this book is really only about transnational bribery. And so the regime that I am describing is the one that's concerned with sanctioning transnational bribery. And the centerpiece really is U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the equivalent legislation that's been adopted pursuant to the OECD Convention. Okay, so say a little bit more, but what are the, when you describe a kind of imperialism, do you mean that the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and similar legislation in a handful of countries end up regulating transnational bribery all over the world because those are the statutes that are most aggressively enforced? Or do you mean that that model for addressing bribery, transnational or otherwise, has been, if not forced on, at least urged on a number of other countries that, but for this foreign pressure, might have adopted a different approach to addressing that same problem? No, I mean the former. Um, and because I'm limiting myself to transnational bribery, I really just mean the, the legislation uh, and maybe judicial practices that are desi- that are aimed at transnational bribery. So that, that doesn't go very far beyond the FCPA and 
similar legislation. Uh, there are other components to the regime, like anti-money laundering laws, which are used are increasingly being used to go after public officials who receive bribes, or debarment proceedings uh, that are sometimes used to sanction companies that have engaged in transnational bribery, and some doctrines in international arbitration law, both investor state and commercial arbitration, that again have the effect of sanctioning uh, firms that engage in transnational bribery. But the core is really the first set of rules that you described, the, the ones that are aimed at transnational conduct, as opposed to talking about their effects on what I think of as regulation of domestic bribery. Okay, great. So when we talk about the the OECD system, we're talking principally about the FCPA, the UK Bribery Act, the equivalent legislation places like Germany, maybe places like France and Canada that are starting to do some enforcement. Basically, you've got a handful of what, for lack of a better term, we might call supply-side countries that have and are enforcing relatively aggressively, at least some of them, against companies within their jurisdiction. Some of that jurisdiction is construed, of course, uh, fairly broadly. And the provocative language of legal imperialism is meant to connote the idea that, as you said, this framework affects what happens in other countries. It's not just limited to the nationals of the countries where that legislation is enacted. So what would the alternative be? So you set up the OECD system, this thing that is being imperialistically, in some sense, imposed, in apparent or implicit contrast to some other state of the world that we might live in. I suppose it would be possible just not to regulate transnational bribery. That would be the pre-FCPA world, you know, pre the pre-1977 world. I take it that that's not uh, where you would like to go. So can you, you spell a little bit more what you have in mind as an alternative way for the world to address this problem, which again, you're very clear, uh, in contrast to other people who use the language of imperialism, you're not saying, hey, moral relativism, it's a bribe to us, it's a gift to them, it's all legit. It sounds like you think that this is indeed a problem, that it's perceived as a problem in developing countries and in the global south. So what are the, what are the alternatives to the system that we have in place? Exactly. Because I think impunity is also a concern, I'm definitely not suggesting the alternative is to do away with the with transnational anti-bribery law. That's definitely not where I'm going. And most of the book is actually about the kinds of issues that I think maybe only lawyers can love. So about fine-tuning the system or the details of the system. So basically, I suggest, well, if you're designing this kind of regime, you've got to answer a bunch of design questions. One is, what are you going to prohibit? Then two, who are you going to target? Three, uh, what sort of sanctions are you going to impose? And then four, who's responsible for uh, imposing those sanctions? And then I sort of walk through each of those issues and suggest that there's room for flexibility. There's room, there are ways in which reasonable people can disagree about how to answer each of those questions. But the theory that seems to underlie a lot of the current approaches neglects some of that flexibility and, and those alternatives. So that's the sort of spirit of the book. It's really, it's not uh, suggesting that, that we do away with the entire regime by any means. It's just suggesting, okay, well, there's room for flexibility. There are possible alternatives on the, on the details, on the legal details of of the regime. And there, these alternatives are not necessarily being explored. So that's step one in the argument. And then step two is to think about what it is about the structure of the regime that leads to that neglect of alternatives. And there, the book, I, I will freely admit, 
is not as doesn't have detailed prescriptions, but it you know suggests well the the simple fact that a lot of the host countries are not involved in the design of the regime is a structural factor that leads to concerns about the the outputs right that the type of design we actually see so that's the sort of thirty the, the view from thirty thousand feet of what I'm trying to do in the book. Terrific. So let me focus on the the first piece of it, the kinds of reforms, the kinds of alternatives that you think would be beneficial. So maybe we won't get all the way down from 30,000 feet, but let's drop to like 20 or 10 or something like that. And, you know, you're right that some of these issues may be issues only a lawyer could love, but I love them. Uh, And maybe some of our listeners will as well. And of course, one of the things that maybe both you and I would like to do is convince the non-legal community that sometimes these things that sound like technical lawyers' law issues are actually really important to the strategy for combating transnational bribery. So, of course, I'm not going to ask you to summarize a very comprehensive and rich book uh, in our short conversation, but can you maybe name your one or two favorite alternatives or reforms that you would like to see in the legal framework for addressing transnational bribery? Where do you think the current system has missed something important or has maybe adopted an approach that might not be always appropriate and, and could be fixed. Give me your, again, one or two, one or two favorites. Right. So and it's really the, the second thing you not always recognize that there are alternatives. Not, and because the, the book is about, is, is in part about the theory as opposed to the actual practice that's going on, because the practice keeps changing. So in terms of the favorites, one thing that has really struck me is the way that we decide whether to impose sanctions on corporations, right? Uh, one of the hallmark features of this regime is that it, uh, it insists on liability being imposed on legal persons, basically corporations, right? And that those sanctions have, in recent years, turned out to be quite significant, running to the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Sanctions imposed on corporations have impacts beyond just the shareholders of the firm. Right. They affect a whole range of stakeholders in the companies, including the employees, their trading partners, the communities in which they're doing business. And when I put my development hat on and I see some of the sanctions that are being imposed, I have to ask, well, is this actually good for development? If, and in cases where the sanctions are sufficiently large to discourage firms from doing business in what are known as high-risk jurisdictions, I think there's a real question as to whether the ultimate end is being served, or especially when the sanctions include non-pecuniary uh, measures, sort of mandates that are imposed by prosecutors that seem to be pushing companies to stop doing business in high-risk jurisdictions. And to me, that's quite counterproductive. So that's uh, one. The second is related. Actually, it has nothing to do with criminal law or public law enforcement. It actually comes out of contract law, basically. For a long time, the typical approach to contracts that are procured by paying bribes has been to say that they're null and void, right? Which sort of makes sense. You some sense that you sort of throw out the contract if it was procured through bribery. That has actually had some very pernicious effects in especially in Latin America recently, post Odorek, where you're seeing that when public private partnership financiers uh, look at the landscape of potential projects out there and they think, okay, should we lend money to finance the next toll road or the next power plant when there's a risk that the the project sponsor will have paid a bribe to procure the contract? They think, well, what happens if the bribery comes to light? All of our collateral disappears because the contract is going to be nullified. And as a consequence, 
they don't they they refuse to lend again from a development perspective that's a huge problem if you suddenly are going to the infrastructure finance freeze up and so it seems to me there's got to be a way to sanction the project sponsor who pays a bribe or at least the the individuals and the managers and maybe the shareholders who've um who've authorized or tolerated or condoned the bribery without putting an end to the project and so there is an approach that's actually now being explored by the Inter-American Development Bank, which says that, well, if we find that uh, one of these uh, contracts has been procured through bribery, if we find there's been what they call an integrity event, uh, we don't necessarily cancel the contract. We force the company to clean house, get rid of the management, maybe even change the shareholders and so forth, but the contract remains in place, and so the financiers can be repaid and the, the project can go ahead. And that, I think, is played a, a role in allowing uh, infrastructure finance to sort of move forward in the aftermath of both Labajato and the notebook scandal in Argentina. Great. So that's really helpful. I would like to ask you about each of those points. So, so uh, two points that you emphasized there. One, if I understood you correctly, that the very high fines imposed on corporations or legal persons may discourage investment in what we sometimes euphemistically refer to as uh, challenging markets or somewhat less euphemistically as high-risk markets, and that could be bad for development. And second, we've got this problem that laws that require uh, or perhaps just permit the nullification of contracts that were procured through bribery uh, may also serve as a disincentive to investment, especially in infrastructure projects where the entire project and a lot of the collateral or investment that's already been sunk into the project could disappear. So so let, let me start with that first one. So the high fines on corporations uh, leads to discourages investment. So as many of our listeners are aware, this is an argument that's been out there in the world for some time. People in the business sometimes use the language of de-risking, which again, for people aren't who aren't in finance, it seems a little bit odd. But the idea is to get the risk basically off of your balance sheet or out of your company by eliminating the potentially risky project. So de-risking would be, we're going to pull out of Cambodia or Brazil or Cameroon or wherever because it's just too risky to do business there. Because if we do business there, even if we try our best and implement good controls, it may be that someone there pays a bribe or pays many bribes, and then we could be on the hook, we the company and by extension, the shareholders on the hook for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or even more. So let's just pull out. That That's the argument, right? Right. Right. So I think those who are skeptical of the kind of de-risking concern that, that you raise there might say, well, how strong is the empirical evidence that in fact there's been this sort of significant de-risking. Firms that complain about Foreign Corrupt Practices Act enforcement and firms that have been hit by big fines and penalties make a lot of noise about it. But again, I'll, I'll put this in the third person because I'm not sufficiently familiar with the literature to make strong claims, but I've certainly heard people say there's not actually a lot of evidence that this pulling out entirely of markets is actually a significant problem, that many of these firms actually stay quite engaged in these high-risk markets. They may refuse to enter into a particular contract or do a particular deal if there are enough red flags, but 
we want them to do that, right? We want firms to to avoid deals where it looks like the risks of bribery are unusually high. And there's not a lot of evidence that the introduction of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the increase in enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the implementation of the OECD uh, Anti-Bribery Convention has had actually a big negative effect on uh, foreign investment. So that's the challenge. Um, are Is there, to your in your mind, sufficiently good empirical evidence that this is actually a significant concern? How would you answer that kind of challenge? I think the short answer is I don't think the evidence is clear-cut. I, my recollection is that uh, the studies, there are one or two studies from around the time that the OECD convention was adopted that suggested that levels of foreign direct investment actually did change in and in a way that was correlated with the riskiness of the country. So and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I do think there was that evidence which goes back a while. And there's certainly anecdotal evidence of firms de-risking. There have also been cases where they've been essentially ordered to or they've agreed to as part of their settlements. So but that is definitely anecdotal. One of the themes of the book actually is that, well, here's a paradigm, here's a critique. A lot of the evaluation of the sort of merits of the critique depends on empirical evidence, which we just don't have. So I think this is a concern based on the empirical evidence, and there's certainly evidence of de-risking in response to one side of the regime, the anti-money laundering side of the regime. But I, I think it's right to say we're, it's just not clear one way or the other, and it would be great to have more evidence. You can't do it just by looking at the firms that have been sanctioned, of course. You'd need to have a broader population. And I'm not sure that work has been done, actually. And so part of the book is a call for more uh, research on the costs of the regime. We academics, of course, love to call for more research because that's what we do, right? So that, that, I'm totally sympathetic with that. Um, again, just to push this point a little bit more, and then I do want to turn to the other point that you just raised a moment ago. So so what ought one to do, especially in the world where that additional research hasn't been done or maybe is impossible to do really conclusively? So to make this more concrete, we've got a company like Siemens, which has been caught paying substantial bribes in numerous countries, or we have... I don't know, KBR, uh, that, and it's, it's come to light that KBR employees have paid significant bribes to win uh, natural gas concessions in a country like Nigeria. So you say, others say, if we impose really substantial fines on these companies for these violations of the existing law, that might be a deterrent to other country, companies going in and doing business in these countries because there is a risk. But what what should you do in that situation, right? You've got a company whose employees have been caught breaking the law against transnational bribery. You and I and others agree that this sort of bribery does substantial damage. A lot of people have the instinct that you should drop the hammer on these people. You have to find them tens of millions of dollars. A company like Siemens or KBR isn't going to feel it unless the penalty is really severe. And we want to deter them. We need to hit them where for them it counts. And that's the bottom line. So if we don't have conclusive empirical evidence that de-risking in the sense not just of reducing some investment or avoiding some projects, but significantly pulling out our, uh, pulling our capital out of these developing markets, what what's the case for you know, doing something else? What is the something else we should do? Not find them or find them a substantially smaller amount or only go after the individual employees who may be outside of our jurisdiction? And what, what's the alternative to sanctioning big companies 
lots and lots of money when uh, their employees or agents have been, let's just assume, caught red-handed paying significant bribes to foreign public officials. Right. Well, first of all, I don't think that we sh- we need to worry about inducing de-risking in every case, right? So if, uh, if we know that a company has no choice but to do business in, say, Nigeria, because it's an enormous market for them, then I, you have a lot of latitude, actually, to throw the book at them without having to worry about over-deterrence and it's prompting them to leave the jurisdiction. So it's always a judgment call, actually, um, as to whether this risk is going to be significant. And in the case of large markets like the Nigerias and Chinas of this world, I'm actually less concerned about this uh, than when we get to some of the smaller countries. And so, in general, part of the solution I recommend is that people at least turn their minds to this issue, right, and consult with any local actors, enforcement agencies, who they think will be acting in good faith and will respond in good faith about the risk of this, that sort of outcome. So that's step one. But as far as alternatives, there are actually alternatives to just finding the company, because actually the finding the company is only a means to an end. I think it's important to remember that. If you really want to deter people, the first step, I think, is often to try to focus on the individuals. And I think we can do more of that than has been done historically. That's changing in the U.S. certainly in the past few years. But at the time of the Siemens action, there was less emphasis, I think it's safe to say, on uh, going after individuals than there is now. So that's somewhere uh, you can go. And it doesn't only have to be the individuals who actually paid the bribe. It can be, you know, people a little further up the, in the corporate hierarchy who authorized or should have been responsible for this. And even if you don't want to put them in jail, civil liability uh, is an option. Uh, and then there are the people on the other side of the transaction, the public officials. And I think most people in the anti-corruption community think, well, there's still more that can be done to hold the, the public officials liable. Okay, I definitely want to follow up with you in just a moment about the idea of holding uh, the public officials liable uh, and doing more in what we sometimes refer to as the demand side countries. Before we get there, I did want to spend at least a moment talking about that other point you made a moment ago about difficulties with the existing regime. And this is the idea that a bribery conviction, what I guess the uh, Inter-American Development Bank refers to euphemistically as an integrity event, I hadn't heard that before, can lead to the nullification of a contract. The, the contract is, it goes poof, we're not, we're not doing any more, we pull out, and that may make investors and others extremely reluctant to get involved because, again, I'm going to try to paraphrase, and if I don't have the idea correct, please feel free to, to set me right. The company that's going to do infrastructure investment or invest in infrastructure investment thinks, look, we're a big company. We don't have total control over everything. It's not our policy to pay bribes, but it's entirely possible that something might go wrong, that someone further down the chain under pressure to get the deal done may end up doing something they're not supposed to. And if that comes to light and the result is the entire contract is nullified, that's a huge loss for us. There's going to be a bunch of of, uh, investment that we're just, as a practical matter, not going to be able to recoup. And that's going to make us extremely reluctant to invest in these infrastructure projects. And in many of the countries we're talking about, there's a desperate need for investments in infrastructure. Do I have the do I have the basic terms of the argument correct? Right. Okay. So thinking about this in terms of what you framed in our earlier discussion as a critique of the OECD model, in particular the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the way that it's been enforced around the world, I suppose 
someone thinking about your point about infrastructure contracts and nullification in the context of a critique of that model might say something like, well, wait a second. It's not the FCPA or any of the supply side laws against transnational bribery that result in the nullification of these contracts. The the nullification results from the domestic law of the jurisdiction in question, right? If the U.S. brings an FCPA action against a firm under U.S. jurisdiction for paying bribes in an infrastructure project in, let's say, Brazil, uh, I don't know the Brazilian law on this, so this is just a hypothetical, but just to make it more concrete. And as a result, the Brazilian authorities say, we're withdrawing from this contract because under our law, we can nullify any contract that was procured through bribery. Isn't it a little bit tricky to ascribe the the legal perversity here to the supply side enforcer, in this case, the U.S., as opposed to uh, the demand side country's own law? I mean, Brazil need not have such a law. So so uh, none of this is to, to criticize the substantive point that you were making, but it's to raise a question about how does that point fit into your larger theme of a critique of what you're calling the OECD system. Right. And so it does take you back to your initial question about what do I mean by the OECD regime. And as I said, the centerpiece is the FCPA and similar legislation, but it also includes other pieces of what I think of as transnational law, like the rules that have been adopted by arbitrators in international commercial arbitration, and also in investor-state arbitration. And so you're quite right to say that this zero-tolerance approach to contracts procured through bribery might be embodied in uh, domestic law, right? But it also has been adopted in the law of international arbitration in in a couple of ways. And so for the purposes of the book, I'm focusing on the extent to which the international arbitration regime, which I think of as part of the OECD regime, has adopted that approach. So I hope that clarifies things. And then more generally, the what I call the OECD paradigm, I associate with something that I call the every little bit helps approach, sort of more is always better, more expansive sanctions aimed at more targets, higher, broader range of conduct that's covered, and more jurisdictions enforcing and more agencies enforcing. I think those are the key features of the approach uh, and the philosophy that I'm uh, criticizing. And so this zero tolerance to approach in contract law fits into the OECD regime, first, because it's been adopted by the international arbitration community, and secondly, because it's consistent philosophically with uh, the other features of the regime that I'm suggesting can be criticized. I see. That's that's helpfully clarifying. There's certainly more to say about this, but I did want to make sure we get back to the point you raised just a moment ago about doing more to hold the government officials accountable, right? So the cliche here is that it takes two to tango, transnational bribery is uh, transactional. There's both a bribe payer and a bribe receiver. The FCPA and similar laws from the so-called supply-side jurisdictions target principally the bribe payers. There are some ways, as, as you know, and as I believe you discuss in the book, that the what, again, I'm calling the supply-side jurisdictions or the, the developed countries, whatever you want to call them, do sometimes go after 
uh, the government officials, their associates, especially under anti-money laundering laws, as you just referenced, right? So if the bribe-taking public official has that money passed through, let's say, a U.S. bank or held in a U.S. bank, then there are ways to go after it. But in the bribery context, typically, U.S. law, for example, targets the bribe payers, not so much the the bribe, or not at all, really, the bribe receivers. So you suggest that that may be a an issue or a problem. So what ought we do about that? And by we, I think I really mean those in the supply side jurisdictions or the wealthy jurisdictions. Because one thing one could say is, well, it would be better if countries in the developing world more aggressively went after their own public officials who solicit or take bribes. Uh, And I think that's the kind of point I think everyone probably could get behind some version of that point. Uh, But from the perspective of the U.S. government or the Canadian or German or U.K. government, what sorts of things can or should be done to try to address the demand side of transnational bribery transactions? Yeah, I was. Um, I wanted to endorse one of the last things you said, that everyone would support having the, the host countries do more to prosecute their own officials, because at the end of the day, I think that's really where the solution lies. Because one thing that I haven't mentioned so far is that I think that the transnational regime, the entire transnational regime, the entire OECD regime, really plays only a limited role in combating the problem that we really care about. There aren't that many uh, FCPA enforcement actions, and even if you think that the broader deterrent effects are significant, they're only covering companies that are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States and uh, you know a few other OECD countries, which leaves untouched a lot of really basically local companies or firms based in um, countries that either don't have these laws or have no meaningful enforcement. So ultimately, I think across the board, the solution lies in more local enforcement. So that's step one. Step two is to think, well, what can countries like the U.S. do to encourage that and facilitate that, because at the end of the day, more prosecutions of uh, foreign public officials, I don't think, are going to have a significant effect, because there will still be a drop in the bucket, and often won't be feasible, right? They simply won't end up being subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And on top of that, for a bunch of reasons that I set out in the book, it would be kind of imperialistic to go after them in many cases. So really, I think the thrust has to be in thinking about ways to support or encourage the host countries to do more about their officials. Great. Well, I'm glad actually you brought up that point about whether there should be more prosecutions of government officials, let's say, by the U.S., because as you are likely aware, there is uh, there is a pending legislative proposal. It hasn't gotten that far yet, at least not at the time that we're recording this interview, to expand the scope of jurisdiction uh, under, I, I don't remember whether it's part of the FCPA specifically or an entirely separate law, but essentially to give U.S. prosecutors more jurisdiction to prosecute foreign government officials who solicit or accept bribes from roughly the same community of entities that are subject to the FCPA's anti-corruption or anti-bribery prohibitions. So your last answer suggests to me your answer to the the question that I meant to pose, uh, but I'm going to pose it anyway, which is what is your view 
of legislation like that. I could imagine some of our listeners who are enthusiastic about this legislation hearing what you said earlier about what we really need to do is to go after the the bribe-taking government officials. That's a way to address this problem that maybe don't won't trigger the same kinds of de-risking concerns, saying, you know, yeah, right on, that's why we need this legislation. It sounds like you're more skeptical, so can you say a little bit more about your view of this particular legislative proposal or, or this family of legislative proposals, because I know it's attracting a lot of attention right now in the anti-corruption community. Right. So the bill is currently called the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, which I think gives you a sense of what the motivations are behind it. It's to protect uh, U.S. firms, essentially, from being extorted by foreign public officials and suggests that, yes, it does take two to tango, and often the, the officials are the culpable ones, and so U.S. Firms, U.S. authorities should be able to sanction them. As it's currently drafted, my interpretation, and I could be wrong on this, is that it would be subject to the presumption against extraterritoriality. So it would, I think, the the way that it's been done, it's not part of the FCPA. The proposal is to tack it on to the U.S. domestic bribery statute or what was previously basically a domestic bribery statute. I think that it would then be limited to cases where there's some... Uh, sort of connection to the U.S. on the part of the official. Uh, maybe they did something uh, on U.S. soil or something. And that helps to reduce the concerns about imperialism, but uh, those will still be present. Um, so when I'm teaching my course on foreign corrupt practices, I ask some of the students, well, what do you think about this idea of prosecuting foreign officials? You know, it would clearly help with deterrence. And on the other side, though, some people push back and say they're sovereignty concerns. What are those? Can you imagine what those might be? And usually people can't. But then I say, well, can you imagine a world in which, say, France decided to prosecute Donald Trump, right, for corruption? And since I teach in New York, uh, that doesn't necessarily raise any eyebrows. People cheer about that prospect. But then I suggest, okay, well, what if Russia decided to prosecute Hillary Clinton for corruption. And one or the other of those examples usually starts to give people pause, right? And I think those are the kinds of issues and concerns about basically sovereignty that are raised whenever you start to talk about prosecuting foreign public officials. Once you get beyond the most clear-cut cases, uh, there's a risk that the, the other jurisdiction will disagree. People in the other jurisdiction will disagree about uh, what's been done. I see relatively little danger of that with the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, because it has a few safeguards built in. But with that general class of uh, proposals, the concerns about legitimacy and sovereignty, I think, become quite central. Uh, terrific. That's, that's really helpful. Let me, before we wrap, and unfortunately we are going to run out of time soon, please let me ask you for your views on a couple of other proposals that have been kicking around related to the FCPA and in particular, these very large fines that, as you noted earlier, are often levied on corporate actors. And this is basically the question, who should get the money or, or what should be done with the money? Right? The, what usually happens to the money is what usually happens to any fines that are collected by the U.S. government, which is they go into the U.S. Treasury. But as you are well aware, and as most of our listeners are likely well aware, this practice has become controversial in the FCPA context or the foreign bribery context specifically. So... There are some who have 
argued that the U.S. government is either legally obligated or at least morally obligated to take some portion of the fines and penalties that it collects in FCPA cases and transfer them to the victims. That's the language that's usually used, the victims of corruption, which may mean the host country government, may mean funding an NGO in the host country, uh, may mean finding some mechanism to return money in some more direct way to citizens or the subset of citizens that were most directly affected or to, or to purchase goods and services to benefit them. A uh, second idea about what should happen with this money relates to another piece of legislation that has been floated in the U.S. Congress. This is this piece of legislation called the Crook Act, which would take a percentage, I believe it's 5% of the fines and penalties that are collected in FCPA cases and basically use it, earmark those funds to support programs, government or NGO programs intended to fight corruption in various ways. So we, we create a, an anti-corruption, anti-kleptocracy fund with these penalties rather than simply having the money revert to the U.S. Treasury, which is, again, the default. So uh, would you be willing to share with our listeners your views regarding these kinds of proposals or these things that you would support wholeheartedly, support but with caveats and qualifications, uh, things you'd be skeptical about? What are your views about these kinds of proposals? I'm on the side of those who think there should be a presumption in favor of the money being sent back to or used to benefit the victims, whoever those might be. And... So in terms of the legal basis for that, I think as far as international law is concerned, this would be consistent with the spirit, I'm not going to say the letter, but with the spirit of uh, Chapter 5 of the UN Convention Against Corruption, which is all about asset recovery, and which is a little different from what we're describing here, but basically restitution and sharing of proceeds from these actions. And I won't bore our listeners with uh, how I derive that from the convention, but I do think it's consistent with the spirit. I think it's also consistent with the spirit of U.S. domestic law, uh, because you're right to say that fines typically go straight to the U.S. Treasury, but in domestic U.S. criminal law, before a fine is levied, the courts typically try to find a way to make restitution to the victims. And it's actually quite odd that that is not the practice in these uh, FCPA cases. Um, I think you have to actually do some uh, work to overcome that presumption against ordering restitution before you collect fines. And, and so I think there is actually a legal basis in U.S. law for making the argument. Switching to the moral argument, I think it's not difficult to say that compensation should be one of the objectives of this regime, and there can be situations where transnational bribery harms people in the same jurisdiction as the bribe payer or other, you know, say competitors and so forth, and so that's, so sometimes competition, uh, compensation need not flow to the country where the bribe was paid, but in a lot of cases, a lot of the harm is taking place in the country, and so it does make sense from a moral perspective to try to find a way to make compensation. Now, I don't want to sort of smooth over the challenge and the challenges inherent in doing that, especially in the context where there's a uh, where you're dealing with a kleptocracy, in which case you'd simply be giving the money right back to the people who stole it. But I don't know if there's many cases like that 
as some defenders of the current U.S. approach typically suggest. And there often are creative workarounds that involve distributing the proceeds back to the uh, d- more directly to the to the people, or at least to some sort of NGO, or you know, for their general benefit in the form of an anti-corruption fund and so forth. So that's why I think, for both legal and moral reasons, there should be a presumption in favor of that kind of remittance. Well, terrific. Thank you very much. I could keep doing this for hours because I find all this fascinating, uh, but I'm afraid that would be too much of a burden both on you and our on our listeners. So we're going to have to wrap this up in just a moment. Before we close, let me invite you, if there are important themes or messages from the book or just from your research more generally that we haven't had a chance to touch on in this interview so far that you wanted to be sure to share with our listeners before we close, I wanted to invite you if you have any final comments or thoughts or points you would like to emphasize to be able to do so. I think, Matthew, the main theme is the importance of focusing on the details of the legal regime and often not just the law and the books, like the scope of the actual prohibition or the the definition of bribery and so forth. That's often the least important uh, feature of the regime because there's pretty much a consensus about how to define sort of hardcore bribery and so forth. But enforcement strategy, how that varies and how it might matter, I feel like that's an area that hasn't received as much attention from either lawyers or social scientists, as it deserves. And so in the spirit of encouraging more research, I would encourage your listeners to, uh, if they're at all inclined to do empirical work and also some theoretical work, to start thinking about, well, exactly how are these norms being enforced, by whom, what sort of penalties, what sort of compliance mandates are being imposed, because... Right now, I think that's what's really determining the ultimate impact of anti-bribery law. Well, I couldn't think of a better note on which to end than a call for more serious academic research on these crucial problems. So I will thank you for that. And I will thank you more generally for your generosity with your time and and for your insights. Uh, It's been really great to have you today as our guest. Uh, Again, our guest today has been Professor Kevin Davis, the Beller Family Professor of Business Law at the New York University School of Law. He is the author most recently of Between Impunity and Imperialism, the Regulation of Transnational Bribery. Uh, It sounds like fascinating work. I've already started to look at it myself, and I hope to have a chance to to read it in in the detail that it deserves uh, very soon. So, Kevin, thank you again. I really appreciate your spending time with us today. Thanks, Matthew. It's been a pleasure.